0: This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. Hi everyone, this is Audio Immunity, recorded on February 7th, 2018. I'm Kevin Bonham, and I'm joined, uh, as we have for the last couple of times, by Camilla Engblom. Hello. Hello. And making her... Uh, return performance back from a long winter of doing nothing important that I can tell. Oh, the long winter of our discontent. (laughs) Yay!
1: I'm back! You can't get rid of me. (laughs) Welcome back. Yeah, because we
0: tried so hard to get rid of you by constantly sending you texts and emails. You
1: tried so hard to get rid of me by scheduling them over my thesis writing, my defense, my move to California, my three moves throughout Boston in the past year my job hunt and starting a new job. So, Hmm. Sounds like a breeze. Mm. Yeah. I,
0: th- I definitely don't think Kate deserves any of the blame for this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have no idea where Matt is at the moment. Um, but Chadeen was going to be joining. And then apparently like everyone in her house just started vomiting all at the same time. So she's not going to be here. Um, And we, we'll miss her. But uh, I think the three of us, we're going to attempt between the three of us to have a cogent discussion. May or may not be possible, considering that only like one and a half of us read the paper. But we're going to give it a shot.
1: Oh, I also wanted to add I was writing a paper, putting a paper through revision and getting it published as well on top of all that other stuff.
0: Oh, that Just, doesn't sound important.
1: Yeah, yeah, that stuff too.
0: Well, okay, well, <laughs> last week, Oh, I should also mention um, this episode may be coming out before the last episode that was recorded. While I was uh, out of the country, uh, Matt, Camilla and Shadeen recorded an episode and there were some technical difficulties that we're trying to sort out. But this episode might come out before that one where they discussed Camilla's awesome uh, cancer and bone paper. Um,
2: This is is just what happens when you're awake Kevin. everything falls apart.
0: I think Just that's true. I think down. that's true.
1: Kevin leaves <laughs> behind some sort of virus. So yeah, I think <laughs> completely and totally crippled crashed, without him. Crash <laughs> my audacity. <laughs> Such
2: audacity. Yeah, I
0: definitely have that power. Yeah. Uh, as a computational biologist, I control all things computer related.
1: Yeah. You can um, convince me.
0: <laughs> um, before we actually get into the paper. Um, first up, we should say what everybody's drinking. Uh, Kate, since you're coming back from the dead, why don't you tell us what you're drinking tonight?
1: Oh, you're gonna love this, Kevin. It's Diet Seven Up. What? So, well,
0: plus gin, plus vodka. What?
1: No, no. See, I'm three hours behind you because I live in California now, and oh yeah, I'm it's just saying. Dirty. Like, uh, and you
0: can't drink at three thirty.
1: Not on a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, fine. Uh, um,
1: technically, I'm at work.
0: <laughs> ah, I see.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to save the drinking for later tonight.
0: Understood. What will That's you fair. be drinking tonight, then?
1: I will be drinking Line 39 Savion Blanc. It's my huh. new favorite $8 wine, uh, which replaced my old favorite $8 wine, Canyon Road Savion Blanc. Hmm. Which... If you attend Harvard Immunology Seminar, I often call pineapple wine <laughs> to the great confusion of the bartenders there, except for the one guy with who's the, the bald bar, bartender. That guy's my boy. We're best friends. Um, he was very sad to see that I was no longer going to be at mm. Immunology Seminar, but we said our goodbyes. Um, he knew he knew what, I, what it was about. He also he also believes in Canyon Road, Sauvignon Blanc, but I replaced it. Are you going to tell it. us
0: what... Pineapple wine means because I have no idea. Yeah, it tastes neither. like
1: pineapple. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought that was like kind of obvious.
0: <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> I call it pineapple wine day. because it has a, a fruity, crisp taste, much mm. like a pineapple.
0: Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Camilla, what are you drinking?
2: Well, I thought to honor the snowstorm that's happening in Boston right now, which is more like a snow mixed slush. Maybe Kate, you you miss this? I'm sure. Um, I'm drinking some Sam Adams Summer Ale. Mm. (laughs) because my fridge is very updated
0: (laughs) fantastic yes (laughs) Uh, um this evening i'm drinking a sort of I, i didn't have time to stop at the liquor store on the way home uh and i'm out of beer so um i went into the liquor cabinet and i got out some short path gin short path is a distillery that's in boston um that opened up by the climbing gym that we go to uh and so i'm having a a short path gin and uh my wife insisted that I not say gin and tonic because it's not tonic. It's just seltzer. Um, but the gin itself is really tasty. And so um, just getting a little carbonation is is totally enough. It's really tasty.
2: That sounds great. Sounds perfect. <laughs> a, I'm a, just going to cut out that. your awkward, your awkward <laughs> responses. It's uh, way more sophisticated than my summer ale. Mm-hmm. Grown-up points to Kevin, for sure. <laughs>
0: I also wanted to mention our uh, Patreon subscribers that are donating $21 now per episode um, for us amazing. to make this podcast, which is which is phenomenal. It means that we can not only pay for web hosting, we can. We can, pay buy, for, a round of at we can buy a
1: round of PBR at Flans. We can
0: buy a round of PBR at Flans. Flans is the lovely little dive bar next to. um Harvard Medical School, but it also allows me to pay for the audio editing software that I'm using. And as we discussed on the last podcast when it was just me and Matt, um, to encourage Matt to drink, despite the fact that he has a small child at home, uh, we're hoping to maybe pay for a beer um, for at least one, if not more, of our hosts (laughs) every episode. So your donations are going to a really, really good cause when you support us at patreon.com slash audioimmunity.
2: Seems like, seems like a great idea. We have two parents with small children as hosts, and we should encourage them to drink as much as possible.
0: <laughs> I, I think so. They're both responsibly in two-parent households. That's right. And so one of them can take over while the other one, you know, gets a little buzzed at the end of a Wednesday. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think reasonable. that's
2: fair. This is their hour of science and not parenting.
0: Yes. In terms of rewards, the, to be perfectly frank, though, we actually would love to um, be providing something extra for our Patreon subscribers because it's really awesome that you're supporting us. I mean, it encourages us to record more often, um, but everybody gets those rewards. So yeah, if you have ideas, send them along. If you have papers that you want us to discuss and you're a donor and you're a donor, we are almost certainly to discuss it. Yeah. Um,
1: if, you so, have, if you have a presentation you'd like me to give you a critique on, you know, we can set up a little Skype chat. I'll just, like, tear it on down. It'll be great.
0: <laughs> I don't know that you want to offer that, but that's a very generous offer, oh, Kate. I um, love doing that. Kate uh, Kate will also uh, make you a figure in PowerPoint, if you really ask her nicely.
1: Okay. Um, I have excellent PowerPoint <laughs> skills. And I know you And I too. will not have you talk about my PowerPoint skills with such derision. <laughs> okay.
0: What derision, Kate? Okay, that was, here's the that deal. That was totally sincere. Here's
1: the deal. Look, I... I'm not one to plug myself like this, but go into PubMed, type Kate M. Franz, and go look at my molecular cell review. There is a beautiful picture of uh, cells undergoing or like deciding between two different fate decisions that I drew fully in PowerPoint. It is gorgeous. It was the front page, like the front banner page of the molecular cell website for the two weeks that whatever it was posted. It was wonderful.
0: I don't know if this will translate into audio recording, but I just want to
1: Oh, is that a clap? That. It's a very slow
2: yeah. clap. <laughs> it's a beautiful story though, Kate. Beautiful story. Mm, yes, lovely. It was wonderful.
1: Uh, I was uh, so <laughs> proud. I took a screenshot of the molecular cell website just as like my own personal validation that the skills are real.
0: It wasn't your personal validation. You sent it to me immediately and <laughs> bragged about it.
2: Can it I just, can I just question how are you using PowerPoint and not Keynote? Is that just um, me?
1: I don't mm-hmm. like Keynote. It's just oh. weird. Um, mm. I, you know, I grew up with PowerPoint. I've adapted it. The real question is
0: why, why you haven't learned Illustrator, d- despite the fact that <sighs> you have several people around you that would be happy to help you learn.
1: Illustrator costs money.
0: A wonderful set of YouTube tutorials by yours truly that could help you make wonderful. (laughs) Anyway, we are sponsored uh, by
2: Apple and Microsoft, and
0: the real the real tragedy is is that those videos have gotten like a couple thousand views, and I am not collecting the like twenty five cents that I would have had I monetized. But oh well. Oh wow! Um, You can watch them without ads.
1: Yeah. Um, I also don't need to make figures anymore. So there is hmm. also that.
0: What What are you doing with your life now? I, I think w- our listeners want to know.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I recently graduated, finished my PhD, Woo-hoo. got my paper Woo-hoo. out, moved to California, got a job. I pulled off that little, like, little hat trick there, getting everything all together at the end. Um, so currently what I'm doing is... I'm working for a science advocacy organization called the Organ Preservation Alliance. And um, what you can... So what we do, you can think of it like um, American Cancer Society, except we're much smaller and uh, more targeted in our our focus, which is um, to preserve organs outside of the body. And so, you know, this is... You can imagine like... Well, like the applications are obviously to organ transplant. If you could preserve organs for longer, um, we believe that you could do more transplants because you would no longer be limited logistically. But additionally, if you could preserve cells, tissues, and organs um, outside the body, we think that you would have a lot of benefits to like developing technologies um, and developing therapies. So we're like... Trying to work towards this goal of uh, preserving organs, and uh, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. <laughs> so I'm a, <laughs> Super I'm a program cool. director. Yeah, I just
0: want to say that that when you started talking about that, your whole demeanor just changes when you go into like, oh, like professional Kate mode. <laughs> I'm part of an organization that, and, and it was really nice, but uh, also it just like totally incongruous with the rest of your commentary.
1: <laughs> I don't think that there's that big of a difference between like. <laughs> Professional, Kate, and like shooting the crap with people Kate went to grad school with.
0: There's a pretty big difference, but, <laughs> but we'll, let our, we'll let our listeners decide. Mm. Um, this evening, uh, we're going to talk about a paper that I definitely read in great detail. And it's called Strains of Bacterial Species Induce a Greatly Varied Acute Adaptive Immune Response, colon, the contribution of the accessory genome, and uh, the first author is Yuri Sella, and the last author is Vincent Fichetti, and this is published in PLOS Pathogens. Um, when was it published? Uh, July of last year, of two thousand seventeen. And so, um, this paper is sort of um, addressing a a question that is. Somewhat obvious in some ways um, and also a little bit um, understudied. And that is the fact that different people respond to pathogens in different ways. So that might I mean, that's sort of intuitive. You think like, yeah, like I when I get a cold. It's not necessarily the same severity as when my wife gets probably the same cold. And most people traditionally have thought of this in terms of. Inter individual differences in immune response. So we've talked about MHC on this program a lot before. This is one of the main ways that we that our adaptive immune system responds to pathogens. And the MHC is a very diverse gene throughout the human population. Um, there are a lot of different versions of MHC that are presenting different peptides to T cells, um, both cytotoxic CD8 T cells, but also to CD4 helper cells, which will change the B cell response. And one of the ways that you could ex- potentially explain why different people respond to pathogens in different ways is the contribution of their personal immune system, MHC in particular, but also other factors. What this paper is looking at instead is the contribution of the diversity in the bacteria or the pathogen, which in this case is a bacterium. and so. The idea here is that though we often talk about like, oh, I got a, an influenza infection or I got a staph aureus infection, it, not every flu is created equal. Not every staph is created equal. There's a lot of variation in the type of strain that you're infected with, and this might have implications for the immune response. You guys are being very quiet, oh. and it's a little bit oh, troubling. sorry.
1: Because <laughs> I have a real job, I haven't read the paper, so I was just thinking about mm, what you were saying.
0: Mm, <laughs> you were explaining it so well. So. Oh, great. <laughs> no, I, okay. think I turned into it a listener
2: instead of a host. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> That's right. So... Would you like us to come with some questions, Kevin? No,
0: no. I just, I think Matt tends to interrupt me more because he has points that he wants to make. And so I'm just a little bit troubled by the fact that I'm being, I'm speaking uninterrupted for more than uh, 60 seconds. Got it. Um, You're welcome. And I do the same to him. I don't want to, I don't want to malign Matt uh, too viciously because I do the exact same thing to him all the time.
2: Well, Um, I think you covered, you covered the main point, right? I mean, it's really the, the, the paper is set out to investigate what happens, like what if we take the cells from the same person, do, do those cells respond differently to different uh, subspecies of different bacteria rather than saying, OK, do different individuals respond differently to the same bacteria?
0: Right, exactly. And and I think it's worth uh, defining. So in the title, they say the contribution of the accessory genome. And I think it's worth sort of talking about what we mean by the core genome versus the accessory yes, genome. Yes, please. So um for for organisms like like humans and mice for mammals um, and uh, um, non-prokaryotes basically in general different individuals of the same species are going to have basically the same complement of genes obviously there's variation within populations so um, for an individual gene we mentioned mhc already there's a lot of variation in that particular gene but everybody's got several several different uh, MHC loci they have basically the same number of MHC loci everybody has a hemoglobin gene there's probably less variation in that there might be some in the population but everybody has that gene and that's true for the vast majority of genes in our genome even if we have different versions of that gene we might we all have the same set of genes with bacteria and other pathogens like viruses, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, And in particular, for bacteria, different strains, even of the exact same species of bacteria, they can have up to 30% of their genome can be completely different. In other words, you have um, like 30%, one one strain of an individual bacterium might have 30% of their genome that consists of genes that are not present in other strains of that exact same species
2: so how do you really define a species then if it's so you know if it's so much variability within a species where do you draw the line of one species versus another
0: that's a great question um and it's actually uh, pretty complicated and somewhat controversial so ah. um for for animals for humans for bears for mice The way that we define species is often it's a little bit uh, functional. In other words, uh, one way that you can define species is to say that organisms that are capable of reproducing and producing uh, viable offspring constitute the same species. Mm -hmm. So. If you have a bunch of different dogs, for example, you have lots of different uh, types of domesticated dog, but. If you breed them together, they can produce viable offspring. And when we say viable, we mean a, an offspring that itself is capable of reproducing right. um, as opposed to there's examples of um, species that can mate and produce offspring, but those offspring are often sterile. So a great example is, um, Ligers, <laughs> Ligers. Yeah. Uh, lion and tigers. Um, I was thinking, I, I don't actually know if, if Ligers are sterile, um, But certainly uh, if you um, if you mate a horse to a donkey, donkey, you get a mule and mules are um, are viable, but they're not uh, they can't actually reproduce uh, with either horses or with donkeys. So we think of horses and donkeys as separate species for bacteria. It's a little bit more complicated because uh, bacteria don't reproduce sexually in general. Um, They produce by binary fission. And so you don't have this idea of uh, the ability to produce fertile offspring. Um, and you have this problem of giant accessory genomes, sometimes giant, sometimes there are minor differences, um, but often you have wide variation. You also have this problem of horizontal gene transfer, which I think I've mentioned before. But this is basically like uh, microbes can share chunks of their genomes um, in uh in accessory pieces like plasmids that are separate from the main genome, but they can also share chunks of DNA that get integrated into their main chromosome. Um, And this can happen across very, very large uh, phylogenetic differences. So bacteria that are from different phyla uh, can actually share genes. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't happen very often, but it can happen. And so um, how do you actually define a species? One of the ways that you can do it is you can say, for a given species, let's look at just the genes that actually are fundamental to that species. In other words, if we look at a thousand different strains of E. coli, all of these, those E. coli, even if, they sh- even if they have a lot of variation, there's going to be some set of genes that is common across all of E. coli. And we can look at those genes and we can say how similar or dissimilar are they from one another.
1: So is the idea here that you're trying to measure time? So like you're trying to measure the evolutionary time between the the different species of bacteria.
0: If you're looking at the core genome, if you're doing what I'm describing, mm-hmm. then yes, that's mm-hmm. the idea is that the more similar a uh, like so one of the genes that is often used, not looking at the ho- whole g- uh, core genome, but looking at one specific gene. Um, that a lot of studies have used to define species is something called the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. So this is a gene that codes for the RNA portion of the small subunit of the ribosome. The ribosome is the machinery that produces proteins inside cells. And the reason that this gene is useful for um, for sort of checking the relationship of bacteria is that every bacteria needs to encode a 16S ribosomal RNA gene most bacteria not all but most only have a single copy of that gene Uh, one of the things about having a flexible genome is that a lot of times genes can get duplicated and if you're talking about multiple copies of the same gene uh, it can be tough to to infer phylogeny from that so generally speaking the 16s rRNA gene only has one copy and it's because it's not coding for a protein it evolves much more slowly than Mm. most protein coding genes because uh for something that encodes for a functional RNA, there are no uh what we call non or synonymous mutations. So for proteins, um because of the way the codon libra- uh, because of the way that codon translation works, some mutations don't actually produce a functional difference in the protein that they encode for. But for the 16S ribosomal RNA gene, um, all of the base pairs of the RNA have some function in terms of, uh, how they shape that, uh, the product. And so, um, there are no synonymous mutations. And so it tends to evolve very, very slowly.
2: So the 16S RNA then would be part of the core for short part of the core genome that you were yes,
0: talking that's about. That's right. And, and it is also present in bacteria of all types, basically across the entirety of, uh, prokaryotic space there are 16s ribosomal RNA genes so we can sort of use this one gene um, as a proxy for the relatedness of of all bacteria but um, for within an individual species of bacteria there are a lot more genes that are going to be common across that entire species and we can use that to define we can use the similarity across all of those genes to get a sort of. Um, a higher resolution picture of the relatedness of of bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it can be complicated a bit by the fact that um, you have horizontal gene transfer and horizontal gene transfer happens more often between re- closely related bacteria. Um, so that can cause uh problems, but in general, that's the idea.
2: It it make it kind of makes me think of trying to parse out whether a cell is one single cell or a doublet in single cell RNA-seq when you investigate the transcriptome of the different cells you know if two cells have stuck together and you're trying to figure out if it's just one or if it's actually the contribution of two because in this case you if you haven't bacteria but you have horizontal gene transfer from another species, it might look like the other species, but you're actually looking at another strain of bacteria i guess it's it's a lot more complicated than it, it looks on on paper
0: yeah that's definitely true and and uh, that can definitely that can be a, a huge problem when we're doing like metagenomic sequencing it's a it's a problem that the lab that I'm in now deals with a lot um In in the case of the bug we're going to talk about uh, in this paper, uh, Staph aureus, um, it's not as big a deal because we have a lot of isolates sequenced. So what that means is that we've isolated uh, basically single cells um, by plating them out, and then we grow those up, and then we can sequence individual colonies, and those represent a single lineage and a lot of these have been sequenced. So we have some sense of the sort of sequence space occupied by strains of Staph aureus. Um, And by aligning those genomes to each other, we can get a pretty decent picture of uh, the evolutionary relatedness of different strains of Staph. Um, But it's worth noting, and it's important for this paper, that different strains of Staph aureus, even though they're the same species, some strains may have genes that other strains do not. Um, and that's gonna matter um, as we as we walk through this paper.
1: As a
2: as a non-bacteria person, can you just before we delve into the paper, talk about what a prophage is?
0: Oh sure. So um one of the um so Bacteria, like us, have viruses that infect them. Um, Viruses that infect bacteria are called phage. Um, And uh, many, if not most phage, um, are integrative, meaning when they infect a bacterium, they can actually integrate their uh, genome into the genome of the bacteria. And many phage have um, different phases of their life cycle one of them is called the the um i always mix them up but there's the lysogenic and then there's the um what's the other one lysogeny mm-hmm. and it's confusing because ly- lysogenic um doesn't actually lyse the bacteria i think it's confusing I
1: mean, lysogenic and lytic
0: lytic yes thank you <laughs> um and so so the phage can actually integrate into the bacterial genome, not replicate, not produce new virions. And then as the bacteria replicates, the phage genome gets replicated along with it. When the phage is integrated into the bacterial genome, uh, that is called a prophage. So it's n- it's when the phage is, is integrated into the bacterial genome but isn't actually generating new virions. And when it switches into the lytic phase... This means that it's going to basically replicate and then bust the bacteria open to spew new phage into the environment.
2: Cool. So it's just uh, hiking along with the bacteria, basically, and letting itself be replicated and contributing to that bacteria, but not making more of
1: itself separately. Yeah, Yeah.
0: exactly. This is this is analogous.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's analogous to retroviral or lentiviral integrations into mammalian. Right. A genome. So they also are replicated through um, the DNA synthesis machinery. So like when the daughter cell, when the when the cell divides, you get two copies of the virus as well. And then um, in the bacteria, you know, different stimuli can activate that phage. It can exit from the bacterial genome and begin its replication cycle to lyse the bacteria and release new phage. Got it. Um, it's really so... Some like extra bonus homework, looking into the cell fate decision of the lambda phage lysogeny lytic. Um, uh, that decision is really, really interesting science. Something that got me super interested into viruses as a young child. <laughs> How young? As a two-year-old, I started thinking about... 2 I, no. oh, I, I believe
0: Kate <laughs> was doing science at two <laughs> like years did, old.
1: Like 10th grade. Awesome. Uh, yeah, you know, the Campbell's biology uh, chapter on microbial genetics. Awesome. Very interesting to me as a kid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I feel like I had that experience with a cancer book as well. It's like, <laughs> all of these things can go wrong when the cell divides. How do we even stay alive? <laughs>
1: <laughs> totally, totally. That's
0: awesome. All right. So, so, basically, figure one of this paper. Actually, before I do that, I should say, um, I I thought that we should do this paper. Um, Chadine recommended it, and then I read the abstract, and I was like, oh, yeah, we should definitely do this paper. Uh, and then I read it, and I was a little bit disappointed, if I'm being perfectly honest. Okay. Um, but...
1: I've, when we get to I've Figure One, this, and I have an oh, idea good. of what this paper is about, <laughs> and it's not based in any sort of knowledge of reading it, just looking at what the experiments were and guessing. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have many questions. Well, that's to test my
0: Guesses. Okay. Um, so Figure One, they sort of lay out the the paradigm that they're going to use for the rest of the paper. So basically, they have a bunch of different strains of uh, Staphylococcus aureus. Which is a, an opportunistic pathogen. Um, it lives on the skin of a lot of people, um, but it can also cause really severe infections. Uh, you may have heard of things like um, MRSA, which is methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus or multi drug resistant Staph aureus. Um, there's also um, various flavors of really, really awful. Staphylococcus bacteria that, that are resistant to a lot of the potential therapies that we might use uh, to treat infections.
1: Yep. I mean, sort of wash like, your hands.
0: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's sort of in the media as like like flesh-eating bacteria is often staph aureus. But staph aureus is is a pathogen that causes a lot of different infections, but it have, as I said, it can also hang out on your skin and not cause infection. Um and so there's quite a wide variety of responses that we might have to this bug and so one of the things that this paper is sort of trying to do is to say uh, are there differences in individual strains of staph aureus that might explain why certain strains will launch into these really really severe uh, infections
1: yes question one yes why are we looking at t cells and b cells and not dendritic cells
0: i am i don't know I'm okay. guessing because these are adaptive immune cell biologists, not innate. S-
2: still, still have yeah. that question. I think, I think, I, would I think it will definitely be... be
0: relevant for for the experimental design. Um, but basically, in Figure One, what they're doing is they're taking um, blood cells from a donor. So they take uh, they take peripheral blood, um, meaning they can basically draw it from the arm. And then in that peripheral blood, you have uh, what are called mononuclear cells. So this includes T-cells, B-cells, monocytes, and neutrophils and a bunch of other things like that. Um, And then they basically incubate these cells in vitro with a bunch of different strains of staph aureus. And then they quantify by facts whether the T-cells and B-cells proliferated, whether they, they started expanding. And, and proliferation for cells like T-cells and B-cells um, is a measure of antigen-specific response. So when you are seeing cells that go into this rapid division stage, that means that those cells had an, uh, an antigen-specific response to something in the staph aureus.
2: Yeah, and I think it. I think it's a really important thing to mention. You meant um, when you were talking about the different types of cells that are included in these uh, peripheral uh, blood cells, so the PBMCs for short. And probably there are not so many neutrophils in there. I think they get um, separated out, but the monocytes oh, okay. are there. And the way that the assay is set up is really that they give the bacteria to the cells in vitro, and then they wait for four days, and then they give the bacteria again. So presumably there can be some presentation of the antigen for, you know, the monocytes can actually present antigen to the T cells in this in vitro culture.
1: And so, so these are, these are bulk PBMCs. Yes. That are getting stimulated. Okay. Yes. Right. And they
2: also give an anti CD8 antibody to these cells. So you're basically uh, triggering T cell uh, activation by giving mm-hmm. the CD8 antibody, CD28 antibody. Sorry.
0: Um, yeah, I, I should say uh, thank you for the clarification. Uh, neutrophils are not mononuclear. That's one of the reasons they're not included, because they actually have like these weird uh, bipartite nucle- nuclei. Yeah, exactly. I forgot about that. Um, all right. So, yeah, so, so that's an important feature um, to think about, that these are they have plenty of time to be stimulated. So even naive cells that are present in the blood, because they have this sort of four day window and then they hit it, hit them again. um, Even naive cells that were in circulation could be stimulated um, by this assay. Uh, And what they find basically is that different strains, they test, I don't know, like uh, 10 or 12 different strains of uh, Staph aureus. And there's a pretty wide variation in how much of an immune response is generated uh, by these different strains? Um, Second question Do
1: you yes. think that there is a wide variation? Because, so you look at if. Yeah. Is,
0: yeah. So figured, it's just from like
1: zero to 20% proliferation. Is that, I is think that that's significant? Cool. I think that's I, quite a lot. If you have, okay.
0: yeah.
2: Yeah, like none of your T cells proliferating versus a third of them proliferating. I think, I would I would say 30% of your. T-cells proliferating in response to something is quite quite a lot.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable okay. variation. Yeah, um, I
1: I have no metric for this.
0: But, uh, well, yeah. just think about it this way, like would you expect 30% of your adaptive immune response to have antigen specific responses to a single pathogen? No. Right.
2: Okay. And I guess that um, like when they're proliferating, they also become 30% of the population
0: because yeah. there's... Yes, mm-hmm, yeah. yes, oh. certainly. Certainly that's true because they're blasting and, and being responsive. But yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> that never stops being funny to me.
0: What? <laughs> the blasting? Blasting?
1: <laughs> <laughs> blasting. It's ridiculous.
2: Anyway. Mm. that's It doesn't that's even that's a strike callback. me as odd. That's a, that's a... <laughs> Just rolling around in my <laughs> peak <peep> reduce blasting.
0: <laughs> um, all right. So... So then they give like some representative facts plots of what they're looking at. That's I feel like that could have gone in the supplement, but whatever. Um, the next thing that they do is they they show us. Uh, so that was the first figure is uh, just PBMCs from a single donor. Um, but then what they do is they look at s- ten different donors. They do the same uh, assay with all of these different uh, things and they sort of look at the, the average response and what they see is a a trend where, when, if their first donor responded to a strain, uh, there's a fairly consistent response with other donors. It's not like a perfect correlation, um, but it's, it's fairly suggestive. The mean response across the 10 donors uh, to the strains that the first donor responded to is pretty high.
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's pretty. It's pretty nice uh, separation. You have the same pattern across the different um, the different strains.
0: Yeah, uh, the main the main objection I have to this is like, why didn't they just start with the the ten donors? Like including the response to the single donor as if they did that first and were like, oh, there's a difference, and then we did more like that. Well, that just doesn't strike a, me as super useful. A <laughs> what
2: I what I like with the single donor is that. You're really asking, with the same cells, do we have a different response? Because in figure 1C, you have the 10 different donors, but you don't see how each patient tracks for every group, right? So you okay. don't see if the, the same kind of trend is there. Or if you look yeah. at a single patient or you're actually you just healthy donor... You have it
1: from the difference in dynamics. Yeah. That, okay, one of these patients... like. Because they didn't respond very well to R N four two two zero, but there is a response for the next strain. You know, one of the non responders started responding, but you don't really track it. So
0: like you Yeah, didn't. but there there are ways of of tracking that for individuals. So you could have the plot in one C where yeah, you're looking at. But now, like we,
1: now, it's just like data, like. Some people just yeah. have PIs who are very specific in the way they that's would like fair. you to make a twenty-panel figure.
0: Do you and I have any experience no, with that sort no, of PI?
1: I don't know. I don't know any examples, but sometimes that's mm. a thing that people really want.
0: Uh, speaking of figures, I have to say, if I was a PI on this paper, I, I am. I know I'm weird in this case, but like, you really, really should not just export a figure from Excel that includes like gradients on your bar plot. Cause, cause the color gradient, it doesn't actually do anything for the figure. And there's like drop shadows on the legend. Did that bug anyone else? It really bugs me.
1: It It, it didn't, but now
2: now that I'm looking at it and you mention it, I won't be able to not see it.
1: Hmm.
0: The, The worst is the drop shadow on the like, uh, significance bars that come later on. Um, no let's see where uh in like figure figure four figure four yeah exactly there's drop shadows on the little bars that say like whether it's uh p less than 0.5 that just bugs the shit. because
1: i recently went through the proofs of my paper and like saw all the inconsistencies that i never noticed but i see this now very brightly in figure four <laughs> yes the, the they're not significant the not so the not significant bar is thicker than the significant bar, yep. and the, I was just yep. like, "Oh no, oh no!" Yep. I just imagine that the first author doesn't see that, and then when this paper went out to publish, they're like, "Why did I put that in one point when everything else is in three? What was I thinking?"
0: Oh, it's awful! <laughs> it's awful. Uh, anyway, so um,
2: so what are the? Can, can I uh, ask yeah. a question here because one of the things I was thinking about these different strains of bacteria here is how. Do the, do these numbers mean anything to you in terms of like aha 8325 yes that's a really common one or USA no. 200 is more pathogenic or
0: you know No but I'm not a I'm not a staph aureus biologist it it might make it these might be very clear to other people but no I have no idea what these are Yeah cuz it was uh, the, the breakdown that they give us is that like which ones are MRSA, which ones are like mm-hmm. vancomycin resistant. But uh, beyond that, no, I have I have no idea what these mean. Yeah, because
2: I'm I'm really curious to to know whether some of these are more likely to be found on your skin or some of these are more likely to be pathogenic. Because that would be a nice correlation with the data that they have, right? If if one is more prevalent than the other, maybe that can actually relate to how. Um much of an immune response you have a priori.
0: right um one of the, so one of the questions I had at the end of this of this paper is like could this difference be explained by um the fact that some of these strains are just more prevalent? yes, and so you if people have been exposed to these strains more um then you would expect them to have more circulating antigen specific uh responses to those particular strains um and that wouldn't be necessarily super interesting. Um, and I think they go they go some ways towards addressing this later on. Um, but let's just jump down um, to figure two. Um, basically, they're showing, again, using the one donor as an example and then checking it in the other 10 donors, um, what types of cells are proliferating. Um, they show differences in Th1 versus Th17 responses. Um, I feel like this... This is probably interesting to like Staph aureus biologists because uh if your immune uh, response is skewed towards TH1 or TH17, that can have very um strong differences in terms of uh outcomes. But I was thinking I would just sort of breeze past that figure um for time and because I, I think it's it's not super critical to the to the overall point of the paper. Does anyone disagree with no, me on that? No, I agree. Okay. Um so so jumping th- then to figure three, here they're trying to get at uh, mechanisms. So this is where the sort of second part of the title comes in, the, the idea of the accessory genome. Uh, and one of the things that they're looking at in particular is those prophage. So those parts of the genome where a phage has integrated. And different one of the things that distinguishes different strains of Staph aureus are the presence of different sorts of prophage. And so in particular, they're testing... Um, The Newman strain uh, and the there's a couple of different um, serotypes of SA that they use, one one of which is M1. And for both of these strains, basically, they generate um, versions of these strains where all of the prophage in the genome have been knocked out. They've removed the prophage from these strains. So they're identical except for the presence of these genes from bacteria viruses. And what they see is if if they take the knockouts of these prophages, the the response goes away. the The mm-hmm. proliferation of cells goes away, um, and the the number of cells actually responding in this this uh, PBMC assay uh, drops to basically nothing.
2: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the T cell response went away, but not the B cell response. I don't know if you were thinking about that or if you reacted to that because the T cell phenotype is really striking. Like you say, it just goes away completely. Mm -hmm. And then in C, you kind of see that the B cells proliferate the same and the IgG is made the same. And it really, that was curious and interesting to me. I don't know what it means, but
0: I thought it was interesting. Yeah. So, so one thought is that, um, because T cells, can respond to a sort of wide variety of peptides and they might be, I was sort of thinking about it in terms of like exposure. So you would expect that there are a lot of peptides that are going to be similar to the ones that staph aureus has Mm -hmm. that are in commensals or not in the context of infection. And so those peptides might be sort of, uh, T cells specific for those peptides might get sort of cleared out. Yeah. Um, Prior to encounter with his staff, um, although that doesn't necessarily explain why the B cell responses uh, would not um,
1: yeah, it was one, be effective. I was
2: wondering if it was an antigen presentation problem rather than a like on the T and B cell end. You know, that mm-hmm. if the peptide presentation wasn't working properly when you knocked out these somehow, or but the whole protein was be able to be presented, but I, I thought it was a little bit. I'm not sure, actually.
1: So for, for, for those of us who don't think about B-cells, what is the difference between T-cell activation and B-cell activation in this assay? So how does, it, how does each one become active?
0: That's a great question. So I'd, I am not a thousand percent positive in this context. From a sort of like basic immunology standpoint... Typically, the way we think about T-cell activation, in particular CD4-positive T-cell activation, is that you have a, an antigen-presenting cell, uh, in this case it's probably a monocyte, picking up phagocytosing some component of the bug, getting a, an innate immune signal through a pattern recognition receptor, and then presenting a peptide uh, on MHC class 2 That is that some CD4 positive T cell is specific for so that Mm -hmm. that CD4 positive T cell is going to receive both signal one from the TCR MHC peptide interaction and signal two from uh, the fact that the the antigen presenting cell has been activated um, and is presenting co-stimulatory molecules for the B cell. Typically, the way that we think about that in a sort of normal immune response in a lymph node or something is that it would have some CD four positive T cell that's been activated and it would get, um, it would basically present MHC on MHC class two. some CD four positive T cell would, would recognize MHC class two on the B cell and then provide stimulation to that B cell Mm -hmm. in this assay. I am wondering if maybe the B cells can be triggered. I know that there are, um, Ways that B cells can respond um, in T cell independent ways through like TLR ligands. So in particular, like TLR nine, I know is, is super strongly stimulating to B cells. Mm -hmm. So in this assay, I don't know if, if they actually require T cell help. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, That would make a lot of sense to me based on, and and maybe it's antigen
0: independent for the B cells. Yeah. Um, If they're getting like really strong TLR nine signaling from staff, and then they might just start proliferating in a sort of uh, not necessarily antigen independent way, but like a lot of B cells have antibodies that recognize like polysaccharides mm-hmm. and they're yeah. bacteria specific, and so you might get some confluence of of that.
1: Yeah, and it so looks, all, it it looks like
2: everything is um it's just stimulated all together in a in a in vitro, right? So they yeah, get the bacteria, they get the CD twenty eight. And so, whether the T cells in the dish that are being activated also activate the B cells or if the B cells get activated directly, right. we, we just don't know.
1: So, could you, given the model that you just set out, could you say that in this experiment, the phage in, in the bacteria that, that, were, that were deleted are either necessary for the activation, so like the, the, the activation of the immune cell or are necessary to be presented to activate the T cells. So either like they're the you know the they're detected Actual by allergen, like, the PRRs yeah. and they and they give like the activating signal or they produce the peptides that are presented that are needed to activate the T
0: cells. I would say it's almost certainly the peptides mm-hmm. because these bugs are going to have a a wealth of innate immune yeah. signals mm-hmm. that are irrespective of the phase, right? So they're going to have LPS, they're going to have bacterial DNA, they're going to have a bunch of crap that the monocytes can respond to from an innate immune signaling standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually now that I think about it, um, it, the B cell response, it seems like it sort of has to be T independent because the T cells aren't getting activated. It's not surprising to me to say that like the B cells wouldn't respond to the presence of this phage because the phage DNA in the, in the bugs, um, probably isn't producing much that is going to be visible to the b-cell right um so but the fact that they're responding despite the fact that yeah. none of the t-cells are responding suggests that uh the b-cell response is is more or less t-cell independent yeah um yeah, I would sort, agree. Of, sort of points to innate signaling to the b-cell
2: and what's what's a little bit interesting is that if you look at uh, in figure 3 in c in the right panel you have a really big spread among the IgG-expressing cells. So it looks like the proliferation is really consistent between the two groups, whether you have these prophages or not. But in mm-hmm. the IgG expression, you see this big split between the ones that actually express IgG or not at, in the TB4 in the prophage mutant uh, scenario. So that maybe is a little bit intriguing.
0: You're saying that the, the, the individual... The individual points are really spread out, even though the mean is Mm -hmm. not significant between the two groups. Yeah, that's a good point.
2: Maybe it means nothing, maybe, but maybe it is something. And maybe you see a little bit more diversity there in whether they're directly or indirectly activated from the T cells.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, Yeah, I have no idea. Could be. Um, But I think
2: that also goes back to Kate's point in the beginning. Why didn't they look at macrophages or monocytes? (laughs) Because maybe you wouldn't have seen any difference between any of these strains. And it's only because you have these differences in antigens and the T cell response that you actually would see these uh, interspecies variability. But if you would look at monocytes and macrophages, I'd be really interested to know, actually. But maybe they would react exactly the same across... Um, the yeah, like species. if
0: you so so if you looked at like cytokine expression yeah. or if you looked at at other ways that the monocytes are going to respond then you might get a better picture. Um ELISA is probably more expensive than fax and mm-hmm. maybe these this lab doesn't have experience with that. Um and also the cytokine picture in this sort of mixed cell assay is going to be really really muddy. There's so many cells that are probably doing so many things. Yeah. Um so like in principle you could like isolate out the monocytes from the from the PBMCs and then hit just those cells uh, but I, I don't know that might be a little bit muddy i'm I, yeah it's i think it's, it's definitely a limitation of the paper but it's not like it doesn't cripple it i think it's ha- it's
2: harder to look at you know to look at activation of myeloid cells by fax that's for sure right like to yeah. really say oh we, this macrophage is now activated Mm-hmm. Right. I, I am definitely of the mindset that it's it's really complicated and you need to look at different markers, different genes, different cytokines, and typically in isolation to really yeah. know. Like you don't have an interferon gamma in the same sense as for T-cells, right? unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you have some cytokines that you can do with macrophages mm-hmm. and monocytes through intracellular cytokine staining, but it's not the same. It definitely doesn't have the same level of clarity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that you get from, from T-cell no, activation and B-cell activation no, markers. they should do
1: single-cell RNA-seq, which right. I'm positive any author in this paper, if I were the reviewer and said that, would start hunting me down but yes i'm that, sure that's that true. would overcome a lot of a lot of these issues that we're talking about yes
0: this this paper was also published middle of last year and my oh, yeah. impression of the single cell rna-seq world is that it is just accelerating at a phenomenal pace yeah and so like this paper if it were submitted today might very well plausibly ask for a single cell, but um. I don't.
1: I don't make Kevin, that as, don't a, as a legitimate criticism. Like, <laughs> oh, they should have done x, y and z. i I only, I only bring that up as a suggestion of if this were an issue. That this mm. is another expensive way and you know time consuming way that you could start to get to our our criticism. Yes,
2: Kevin. I don't know if you want to cut this part out, but I see that they published it on January 11th this year. I think it was submitted in July last year.
0: Oh, interesting. Have, okay, for the sake of no, we can, we can, we can leave that in. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, a good clarification. Yeah. So it was uh, submitted um, in July, but it was published on January eleventh, twenty
2: eighteen. But yes, I. It's think- nice
0: that you get that that transparency from from PLOS. Um,
2: yeah.
0: So. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. I I think that that figure three is really helpful to sort of um, alleviate potential concerns that this is just a like an epidemiological thing where it's like certain strains people have exposure to. And so, you know, they have bigger immune responses that might also play a role. Like there's no reason that that phage genes should be more immunogenic. It might just be that the phage is the thing that varies among strains and so um
1: i mean yes or you know, no hit- it might be um something about the way that they're exposed to the bacteria normally maybe they don't see the phage as often so like maybe right. the context of it, so like if you're exposed to the strain maybe you see it in the context where you, n- you never see the virus but now in this dish, the bacteria become stressed. The phage is released, and that is what drives the the activation of the yeah. immune immune cells.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's that's totally plausible. Um, there's no there's no evidence in this paper one way or the yeah. other. Yeah. Um. So so it could definitely be that the phage is immunogenic, and that explains um, something about the differential response. It could be that. The presence of the phage is just differentiating different strains, and people are exposed to different strains at different levels. So they have a different baseline uh, of antigen-positive yeah. or antigen-specific T cells and B cells so in the blood circulating for certain strains. I also
1: didn't, so I didn't read the paper. <laughs> um, but You've
0: said that. <laughs> do they
1: talk about if there's a difference in sur- in survival of the bacteria in these two different um So, so I what think I, what bacteria I'm getting at is.
2: Killed. Before
1: is it edit. oh, is it heat kill? Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. that's the assay <laughs> is, is all ex vivo. Yeah.
1: Interesting. And okay. Because I was going to say yeah. maybe there's maybe there's a difference in uh, the viability like of the bacteria, and stuff, so they yeah. so, yeah. yeah. might under like with with a phage present, they might activate replication, and now in these um, bacterial infections with phage, maybe you have more bacterial killing and more activation. Blah 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 blah. But okay.
2: No, I was not, I was also thinking about whether like the way that they kill them, how you standardize for exactly the same amount of bacteria that you add. Mm-hmm. Like, how challenging is that? Can you, re, you know, do if you say we added so and so many particles or bacteria to begin you know, with? They're
0: just doing they're just doing it based on on OD okay. optical density. So yeah. so when you grow bacteria, you can sort of look at the the optical density of the media, and that's a proxy for. Uh, how many mm-hmm. bugs there are yeah.
1: um optical density and, is is a fancy way of saying cloudy
0: yeah exactly right <laughs> it's at a particular wavelength this is a standard thing um they they do actually say in their methods which which i i give them credit cuz most people will just report like what they used and and not say they they say that the um the od was chosen because the bacteria are at their maximal prol- proliferation stage and before secretion of virulence factors and superantigens <laughs> so um, I give credit for them actually saying that that's the case. There's some question in my mind about like the average proliferation versus individual cell proliferation. And that could vary even if like on average they're different. You might have individual cells that are like, you know, with the phage they're getting to a lytic stage. Um, and so you have like, you know, 10 percent of your bugs are spewing phage out. That might change things. I don't know. But, I, you know, it's I think it's. It's not unreasonable the way that they did that. Yeah. It's pretty standard. Okay, cool. Um,
2: and then the, like you said, the figure three is really the one that makes this paper cool. I think the fact yeah. that they remove the phages and they see that there difference in response goes away. And
0: yeah, uh, it it would have been nice if they had if they had done the the reverse experiment. So take one of their strains mm-hmm. that that does not cause a strong immune response and like add the phage in yeah. uh, and see if that is sufficient to generate a strong immune response. But again, like that experiment is harder than the the straight knockout experiment. And I don't, you know, necessarily fault them for that, but um, it would have been cool to see.
2: Yeah. And I was um, also thinking for the pre-exposure they use, they did one experiment where they took cells from mice and said, you know, that they can see the same differential activation using mouse cells, but it, also there you could say that maybe you had some pre-exposure to pathogens you know if they really wanted to go die hard experiment like a germ-free mouse and then take cells from those and then see if you would. yeah have-
0: but there's problems with germ-free mice too and uh like their immune systems are totally messed yeah, up so
2: that's, that's fine uh, too Yeah.
0: and and germ-free mice are freaking <laughs> expensive uh as well. But anyway, so so moving. So figure three, I think, is sort of the crux figure four. So before before Chadine let us know that that her house was covered in vomit, um, the one thing <laughs> that she said is that she was very confused by figure four. Um, and to be perfectly frank, I have. I, it, it's not a very informative figure. It's also like a really, really terrible offender of like export from excel figure so like i have trouble seeing past that um like like the gradients on the on the bars are bad enough i already mentioned the drop shadow on the (laughs) non-significant bars that's just that's just inexcusable you cannot put drop shadows in a a figure for a science paper you just can't um but that aside um so what they're what they're showing is what they're calling the coefficient of variation in T cell proliferation, and they're comparing it um between different strains versus between different donors so so the question here is, is the variation in response explainable by variation in uh the donor that they um that they gave the strain to? Or is it explainable by variation in the strain of bugs? So you sort of have like two dimensions of potential variation, and the question is which of those dimensions explains more of the difference in response. And to be to be cl- frank, I, I think that the differences between A, B, and C, A, B, C, and D are uh, marginal. They say A, which is the the difference in T cell proliferation, is statistically significant, while the variation in interferon gamma for uh, Th1 cells in B cell proliferation and in um, IgG expression are not significant. They all have sort of the same trend. The error bars in some are just a little bit bigger. And uh, I don't know. I, I think this is not a particularly informative figure. And doesn't really tell us a lot extra. But
1: yeah, um, yeah I, would, I would agree with that. So. Okay. Okay, so T cell proliferation strains. Okay. Trying to like wrap my mind around what this actually is saying.
0: Yeah, it's a a sort
1: of... So the coefficient of variation is essentially just a measure for if we were to plot like all of these values like in a histogram, what is the standard deviation? So the uh, larger the number, the more variable. um, The more variable... The the actual um, numbers were or, you know, the values were so like the strains are more value. Okay, so T cell proliferation, when you group them by strains, you have more variation in the actual numbers there. But when you group it by donor, there's less variation. So the donors.
0: Well, the the donor response to the same strain
1: the donor response to the same less, oh okay okay has yeah. less
0: variation okay. than the uh than the differences
1: between the between strains between
0: strains from the same donor
1: okay gotcha maybe that's why there was two different uh representations of the data
0: okay right um and and i think um the reason one of the reasons that this is problematic is because they have So few. They they have like 16 strains and they have 10 donors. So like. I don't know, those numbers just uh, seem very, very small to make any strong arguments, and particularly because the trend for every one of these is the same, mm -hmm. but some are statistically significant and some aren't suggest to me that that really we just need a lot more. Strains and donors yeah. to make any cogent argument
1: mm-hmm.
0: on this point.
1: But yeah. the trend—I mean, the trend does follow the. Um, oh boy, I just lost my word. The trend does <laughs> <laughs> follow the
0: conclusion that they're Sorry. that they're saying. The which is that the, 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 the strain conclusion. variation. Thank you, Kevin, yes. for that. Save you're welcome. Yeah.
1: So we would expect. Well, we would hope. That if you increase the actual numbers of strains and donors, that these might trend towards significance, as people like to say in talks. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's actually the difference in strains and, and not the difference in donors. So, I, I don't know. I feel like this should have been a, a s- figure two or maybe a, a small panel of fi- figure one just to go for yeah. your 20 sub yeah. panels.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I don't like... Or or even like, honestly, even a supplement like yeah. they have other stuff that, that suggests this information. This is like another way of measuring the same idea and sort of like putting a, a numerical statistical bent on it, mm-hmm. which I'm a fan of. I just like it seems really weak mm-hmm. for the conclusion to the paper, yeah. which like, you know, that's. It obviously made it in plus pathogens is no slouch of a journal. And, and I think the paper is, is it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective on it. Um, I would now, I really want to know, like, is this uh, sort of idiosyncratic to staph aureus? Is this true of lots of other uh, bacterial infections? I mean, we know that variation in uh, MHC can have huge impacts on inter-individual Differences in response to particular strains for like viruses and stuff so like is this weird for this bug is this a common trend you know maybe this lab is working on that I have no idea Um, but it's sort of a cool suggestive paper and you know aside from my my complaints about Excel exported (laughs) spreadsheets or uh, bar plots. Um, it's really clear also that like different people did uh, different yeah. plotting because some of them are clearly done in Prism and some of them are clearly done in Excel. Um, but I feel like whatever, once, you, once you use Prism, you, once, you use Prism you,
2: once you use Prism, you can never use Excel again to make <laughs> a graph. True. I just I, I just walked towards Prism and never turned back. And then...
0: I, I agree with that 100 um, percent. And these days, though, I do almost everything like programmatically um, and I don't even use like. I've got just a giant CSV and then I'm using code to to plot stuff. I sort of miss when I could use Prism because Prism you know is really computers
2: fun now. You miss you miss <laughs> copy pasting. <laughs> copy pasting I miss
0: using Prism. I I think Prism I think using Prism is really fun. Um and I I miss it. I just can't do it anymore cuz my data tables are
2: you know, like next time prism. next time I so. do a flow fair, experiment, fair. I could send you the Excel spreadsheet and then the Aww. and then the prism, and then you can make nice little graphs for me if you want. Oh, <laughs> thanks!
0: That's very nice of you. Right? I probably wouldn't. I would no. probably just load it I into. I feel like you have so. more important things to do. Also. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. So. Yeah. That's. So. That's the conclusion of the paper. Um,
2: yeah, I would say I I buy the fact that when you have the same patient or healthy donor. The cells react differently when exposed to different. So T cells respond differently when you expose them to different strains of the same bacteria.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and certain back certain strains seem to be broadly immunogenic Mm -hmm. for lots of different subjects, Um, which, you know, is I I don't think that they they really nailed that down. Um, Even even with the knockout uh, experiments, they're still they're probably collecting the same donors from the same hospital or something. So like exposure could yes. still explain yes. that to some degree. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were able to narrow it down to the prophage uh, as at least for the T cells, um, that's cool. And there's a lot of future directions for this work. And um, yeah, I think it's it's pretty neat. Absolutely. Um, so unless anyone has anything else, this has been Audio Immunity and as always you know we want to encourage you to reach out to us there's a lot of different ways you can contact us you can go to our website immunity.org e m m u n i t y.org uh there's a contact form there you can find all of our old episodes uh you can search on different topics as I mentioned uh, last time I put a uh, a sort of tag cloud next to the posts so you can like if you really want to learn uh everything about T cells you can click on the T cell tag and find all of our episodes about that. If uh you should definitely go to patreon.com/audioimmunity uh and kick us you know a dollar even 50 cents an episode would be really awesome uh, if you have ideas for what we should do with that money you should also tell us um, we're we're now at the point where we are uh, comfortably paying for the website and we're paying for the audio editing software that i use and maybe buying matt an episode uh, a beer every other episode or so we've got lots of other things we could be doing we could be spending more time on artwork uh, we could be doing more recordings doing more mini-sodes, which we haven't done in a long time. Uh, So uh, please send us your suggestions. Um, You can also find us on Facebook and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash audioimmunity. Uh, And, you know, the the main thing that you can do to support us, honestly, the best thing that you could do is to share us with your friends. If you have friends that are as nerdy about immunology as you are. um,
1: (laughs) Or you want to convince uh, them to be.
0: Or you want to convince them to be. You know, we've got a a small and dedicated audience, uh, but we could definitely grow a lot and um, we need your help to do that. So if it's sharing directly, that's the best thing. But if you just want to go to iTunes or to Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts that has the ability to rate us, you know, rate us, leave a review. Um, It's super helpful to help other people discover the show um, and, you know, send us your paper suggestions through any of those contact uh, links you can find me on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. We've hey, got links to all this I'm stuff on, on the website. You're on Twitter? Yeah, what? I'm on
1: Twitter. I joined a long time ago, but and I haven't tweeted yet, but I'm on Twitter now. <laughs> so I like to have the app okay. on my phone. I follow other people, yes. I follow a lot of other people. It's mostly politics, RuPaul's Drag Race, and The Bachelor, but I'm considering mm-hmm. tweeting about science. My Twitter that's is exciting. Kate M. Franz, because that's my name
0: what's up awesome yeah we should we should put that on your bio on the website immunity.org
1: like you Uh, could be kate's first tweet well i have tweeted at one person (laughs) just some thoughts about the bachelor patrons
2: could get this as (laughs) (laughs) their.
1: um but it's something i'm i've been playing with doing you know joining this world of social media (laughs) that seems to have taken everyone else by storm Mm. Ah. Oh boy! Why am I on a podcast? <laughs> I belong in 1990. <laughs> I found the Twitter, <laughs> but I'm considering tweeting. So
0: that's exciting.
1: So if you tweet at it, me, maybe I'll start it, tweeting back. Is that how it works? Do you you app, you tweet at people? You can right?
0: you can you can tweet at people. Okay. You can also retweet people. So if you tweet, maybe our listeners will will hit the retweet button.
1: Yeah, I've also started um, liking tweets. Again.
0: Whoa.
1: Mostly politics, RuPaul's drag race and The Bachelor. Oh, is it not cool Fair. to like things? You should not like things.
0: No, that's totally okay. acceptable.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought no, you
2: made what a video. No. <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
0: <laughs> that's how that's how I the, the like once a week that I log into Twitter, that's how I know what to look at because of what other people have liked and retweeted. Mm that I'm following. Anyway, (laughs) with that random digression into social media, um, I think we'll say, we'll see you next time.
1: Sorry, I just never have anything to plug. I was really excited. (laughs) (laughs) We're very excited for you. Thank you, thank you.
0: Bye, everyone.
2: Bye.